Hello, and welcome back to Held in Common, a podcast which celebrates the stories that are held in our communities, in our common knowledge, in our folk histories, and in our everydays. Stories told like it is, like they are, by local people. I'm Polly Tisdall, freelance storyteller and coordinator for the Network Bristol, a community project which connects and empowers local residents. For the next three episodes, we've worked in partnership with housing and homelessness charity Shelter Bristol to shine a light on home truths, stories from local residents and organisations who have made Bristol their home and who are working to build secure homes and a better housing system for others, pandemic or no pandemic. We've asked people to tell us what home means to them and to talk about the housing issues and inequalities in Bristol and the positive action they are taking to create change. This episode focuses on how residents have made the city the centre of their lives, work and campaigning, and the impact a home can make for each of us as individuals. We've called it Putting Down Roots. Here's Bernie. I moved to Bristol 11 years ago and I've lived in three different houses so the idea of what is home and how when do you start to call a house a home or a new country a home or a town a home is a very important question Um, around I think five years ago I decided that home was Bristol many people come to Bristol and build a sense of home and of community in different ways. Lizzie works for Bristol Hospitality Network, or BHN, who support asylum seekers with eligible claims to find accommodation in the city. BHN has been going for about 10 years. Um, It focuses on supporting destitute asylum seekers with accommodation and wraparound support, which involves um, kind of community and creative opportunities, but also support with their asylum claim. So the founders, Rachel and Naomi, saw the need for this quite specific group of people who from over to the UK had their asylum claim refused, are able to make an appeal, um, but aren't don't have any kind of rights in the UK. So they are considered NRPF, they're considered no recourse to public funds. So they're not allowed to have any benefits they're not allowed to rent privately, they have no permission to work, um, and so essentially are made destitute in that period of time. BHM was set up to provide those individuals with accommodation um, through either our hostel, which is a 10-bed hostel, or our host network, which is like people like you or I giving a spare room for someone um, for a, at least a minimum of three months, and then would provide support with their claim, their asylum claim, to help them move forward with their, with their status in the UK. Joe is an active member of a Bristol housing co-op, an architect and a community-led housing advisor. Like Lizzie, she is passionate about creating better homes for people by sharing resources, a way of living which shaped her own ideas of home from an early age. So my parents, my, my, my dad's best man was actually part of a, um, a house in a commune up in Gloucestershire called uh, Post Hall. 
Um, so when we were kids, we used to do a, a house swap for a week for our summer holidays. So we used to come down and uh, live in their house, which was um, part of a, a huge Tudor manor house where nine families lived. So that was probably one of my earliest experiences of uh, communal living. Um, communal not in the sense that they all sort of ate meals together all the time. They were distinct um, units within the, within the house, but, you know, they had... Um, uh, roofers there working on the organic farm and um, it was you know it was, it, it was I think at the time it was one of the longest running um, communes in the UK and then um, my parents and their friends had um, they had like a, a whole food cooperative and a babysitting circle. I was first introduced to cooperatives as I know it now by um, actually responding to a poster which had been put up on a, a lamppost in Easter which a friend of mine put up um, saying, do you want to join a housing cooperative? And that was actually facilitated by uh, Carla, who, was, who used to work at the network. Um, yeah, so saw this poster and um, went along to the, to, the, to the first meeting. The Anchor Society is a Bristol-based charity which works to support older people in the city. Their chief executive, Richard Pendlebury, has worked for charities in Bristol for many years and is passionate about the need for high standard housing. I was asked some years back to uh, really get MAS Bristol going, um, which is a charity for homeless people, which provides home and work um, in a community setting. Um, (laughs) I was asked to raise a million quid to buy the first building. Um, I'd never done it before, um, but anyway, it's been there now, I think it's 15 years. So yeah, got it going and I think that whole thing about people having a home um, is really important. And a home isn't some place to sleep on a couch or um, a hostel or you know somewhere for the night. A home is a home. And I think part of that is having um, the things that we, you and I would think of home. You know, it's, it's safe, it's secure, uh, but also there's friendship, there's warmth, there's love um, and um, a sense of belonging. Local resident Sharon has lived in East Bristol since she was a child and used to work as a lead worker for a women-only service in temporary housing. She feels passionately about home and what it is that creates a sense of home in a building and in a neighbourhood. I've worked in housing for over 12 years and I realised the impact of what it's like to be homeless and it's really, really difficult and some people actually die. So it's really important for us to always um, encourage um, agencies to help people to get their own secure home and that is affordable and that is sustainable and that we can um, sometimes try and think out of the box and put ourselves in other people's shoes because it's so important for your well-being. When I asked local people what home means for them, well-being was at the heart of many of the answers. This next resident, also from East Bristol, told me her story. My early years, or the majority of my childhood, or all of my childhood, was kind of characterised by housing precarity. And um, we, I mean, we we moved like every year, if not more. Um, And the longest 
we ever were in one place was for three years. Um, and we were evicted from that place. Um, I was 15, my little sister was 13. Um, really kind of destroyed both our educations. Um, you know, obviously my mum's been through all that too. Um, and it's it's had a huge effect on us. The kind of, that kind of instability stuck with me throughout my teens and early 20s when I was having to, you know, be an adult and look after myself. Um, but I didn't really have the skills um, to do that. So I kind of wound up homeless in a variety of ways, really. I've done couch surfing, squatting, sleeping rough, and found myself in just all kinds of situations where I felt unsafe, you know, walking for miles trying to find somewhere to sleep where I feel like I can actually close my eyes and rest so that I feel like I'm actually safe being, you know, being hassled by the police to move on, security, that kind of thing. Um, being followed by men and taking like ridiculous amounts of detours and, you know, spending a day trying to lose a guy that's just fixed on you because you're vulnerable um, and look like easy prey. You know, these kind of, these kind of things that not having a key to your own four-walled, roofed, safe space um, kind of put you, uh, make you vulnerable and put you in, in the line of fire for. <laughs> um, so for me, I guess I'd say <laughs> home is a place where I can genuinely feel physically safe. It's also a place where I can be and stay and not be in survival mode all of the time. And what that means is that I get to learn about myself. I'm not always fighting or running away from the things that I don't like <laughs> that are bad. I'm learning to experience things and judge for myself whether I enjoy them and whether they're good for me and whether I'm good at them. And I get consistency. Home gives me a foundation from which I can grow into myself and grow myself. I can get an education. I can learn to play the mandolin. I can get a stable job and, you know, build myself up from there. The idea of not having to be in survival mode, of having a firm foundation from which you can build upwards, cropped up in Lizzie and Joe's stories too. Lizzie told me about the many blocks, emotional and practical, that asylum seekers face when trying to establish a home in Bristol, and why accommodation is essential to them being able to make an appeal. They're in a completely new country. Um, they, some of them know people here, either from the same ethnic community or from family and friends, but some people don't. Um, they don't speak the language, they don't know how to even acquire any kind of accommodation. So if you're in that position where you're either sort of sofa surfing and living in temporary kind of 
position and you're listening to friends and family about how to make it in the UK, um, who probably themselves don't really know and understand the Home Office and their, pro their processes, um, you've just got no chance, have you? There's absolutely no chance you're going to be able to appeal that, that, that refusal. We only take on people who have an eligible claim, which is most people we take on. So that gives you kind of an idea about the Home Office and, and their first refusal kind of process really in the hostile environment that they create for asylum seekers coming over. Accommodation is that first kind of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's that safety, it's that physical, that physiological support. Um, not really do anything really from any other position. And I think when they're either in our hostel, um, which is sort of a 10 bed hostel with 10 adult males in, and there's also a host couple as well who are refugees themselves. Um, it's kind of a, it's a sort of settled place. You know you're going to be there for a time. You feel like you can breathe out. <laughs> for Joe, the cooperative model also offers a breathing space. Any cooperative is a business which is owned by its members. Um, and this means that the, the, the members own the wealth of the business together and not as individuals. Um, so with a, a housing cooperative, the members are the tenants and they're also responsible for um, for maintaining and um, maintaining the properties. Um, the, 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 the positives of this model is that the, the members have, um, they, they get secure housing, uh, they generally pay lower than average rents, um, but you know the off the offshoot is that when they leave the co-op, they don't take any stake in the properties with them. Mm. So if the property goes up in value, you know they're not they're not personally benefiting from it. Um, but what this what this means is that the, the the value of the property is is locked in, and it'll be the future members who are coming into the cooperative that that then gain from the you know from the secure tenancies and the um, and the lower than average rents. Um, it just gives you a bit of security and a bit of breathing space. Everyone seems to agree that a secure home is fundamental. Feeling secure is, is priceless. It really is. It, it can save a life. <laughs> um, it means an awful lot to me. It's a basic fun, fundamental right, isn't it, I think, to have a home. So, you know, I, I think that should be normal for everybody. <laughs> and yet we know that Bristol, and the UK as a whole, is in the middle of a startling housing crisis, and that we operate a housing system which is far from accessible to all. The campaigning arm of housing and homelessness charity, Shelter Bristol, has been talking with private renters about the problems they face in trying to find and maintain a secure home, and bringing them together through their Home Truths campaign to fight for a fairer renting system. I met with a group of private renters and Daisy, Shelter Bristol's local community organiser, to hear their stories of seeking to create a home in Bristol. Um, I private rented in Bristol for 14 years. I just moved out of the city like three months ago, but had lots of challenges during those four years renting. So I really would love, yeah, Bristol to improve. <laughs> Thanks, Kate. Yeah, hi, I'm Daisy. I'm a community organiser for Shelter here in Bristol. Um, and I've lived and rented private in Bristol for about four years. And Benoit. Uh, I'm Benoit. I've 
been renting in Bristol for must be coming up to 15 years now I think uh, possibly I lost count but around that hey um so yeah my name is Rianne um I've lived and rented in Bristol for about seven years now um I started as a student so that was nice and fun and precarious um I've been private renting the whole way um and since being a student I've also been private renting my name is Owen um, and similar to Rianne, I started renting in Bristol about seven years ago, I think. Uh, again, initially as a student and then moving into freelance work, um, um, but like again, private renting all the way. The group recently created a mural in Stokescroft as part of their campaign to highlight the issues facing renters. I asked what motivated them to get involved in an action like this and about their individual experiences of renting in Bristol. I looked through a hundred Gumtree ads. I knew in the past Gumtree used to be quite cool because it was only the private renters, but now all the like agencies have got on it too. So like everyone's on there. But I looked through a hundred ads and of a hundred ads, only nine of them um, were suitable. What could I afford? Um, eight of the nine were for people younger than me. So I was too old. So it left only one out of a hundred. And when I got to page three of the small print, it said no DSS. Uh, I ended up, even though I had ME, um, I had to move house to a temporary house of friends of friends who, whose house was on the market, not knowing when the house would be sold as just this kind of temporary fix to tide me over. And then thankfully got somewhere kind of three, four months later. Um, but yeah, there wasn't anywhere available for me. And I had history, of, I had like, uh, how long? Probably 20 years, probably about 20 year history of paying my rent in full on time every month. And I would have been an excellent tenant, but the adverts didn't allow me to present myself, didn't allow me to meet people and, and prove myself to them. I was just excluded. Um, yeah, so that, that's my strong, strong motivation for joining the campaign. I think something that I've experienced a lot is, um, feeling a sense of once I have a tenancy my tenancy is still precarious I'm still vulnerable to the whims of the landlord if they decide they want to get rid of me for whatever reason you know I put a poster up on my wall with a bit of blue tack or you know um they want to sell it as to you know have it as a house of multiple occupancy or, or you know I'm, I'm a professional but they want students or you know whatever it is um you know you just always feel slightly precarious even if you have a tenancy so you feel like you have to accept things which you shouldn't have to accept and even though there are organizations like shelter that give advice and so on you it's sometimes very hard to know what's available to you to kind of give you your rights and sometimes it's like a uh, a thing of well you have these rights but that's all sort of a gray area you know so you just accept unacceptable living conditions over and over again because mm -hmm. you're just grateful to be allowed a roof at all because often you've been through so much to get to that point in the first place you're like please let me keep the roof you know and you know, I've had landlords that just 
step over the line. I had a landlord that would just never give the um, 24 hours notice to come to the property that he was supposed to give. He'd just come, you know, and or the landlord that he, he needed to fix the house. The house was horribly broken in a number of ways. And in the end, I had an awesome housemate and she knew how to sort stuff out, which I didn't at the time. So I was very grateful for her. She got the council involved. We got him to sort the stuff out, but not without a lot of actual like very threatening texts, messages sent to a number of us housemates um, and also physical intimidation toward me in my, in my, you know, the place that I was a tenant, my own home, you know, supposedly my own inverted commas home, um, you know, and there was nothing I could do about that. This man has a key to my home. You know, there's a lot that we feel that we have to accept and there's a lot that we end up having to accept. Rianne makes an important point. Before you can stand up for your rights, you first need to know what they are. Shelter Bristol runs online renters' rights workshops every month, which provide a space for private renters, or those who are about to start renting privately, to get housing advice and find out what rights they do have, as well as how they can join together with other renters to campaign for those they don't. Their next workshop is at 6pm on Thursday 14th January, and you can register by following at Shelter Bristol on Twitter or giving them a call on 0344 515 1430. Benoit, another member of the campaign group and an artist at the People's Republic of Stokescroft, designed the Fair Renting campaign mural. He explained how he got involved and some of the things which mattered to him about the design. Stokescroft feels like more of a community to me than anywhere else I've lived because I've never been able to live anywhere in Bristol very long because I have to keep moving because I'm a renter <laughs> um, which in itself is quite uncomfortable um, I never get to know your neighbours or anything um, as far as the mural goes I was particularly pleased with the the middle bit when the no place like home as an idea here like I initially was thinking of like uh, using the something along the lines of the housing symbol that shelter will use as part of their logo but actually the point that uh, a lot of people who don't have a house <laughs> stay on a sofa everyone who has somewhere that they can call home has got somewhere that they sit and are comfortable hopefully even and like it's more likely it's kind of it's a more general symbol of home rather than a house having to be a home um, and that but also kind of refers back to people who are sofa surfing or people who are living on other friends spare rooms and things yeah, I was really pleased to get involved in this and actually um, during the design process for the mural there was a, a fair bit of back and forth between myself and the rest of the group via Daisy because I hadn't actually met everyone else at that point but, um, and yeah it was really useful input and uh, the design evolved a fair bit from all that as well. As Benoit points out Home, for many people, does not currently mean a house. And homelessness does not always mean sleeping on the street. The lack of a suitable home disempowers lots of different people at different moments in their lives. And as Kate's story highlights, discriminatory practices make finding a home extremely hard for certain groups. Richard recognised that there are challenges facing older people too, who have grown out of their houses but have limited options in terms of finding smaller accommodation, which can feel like a home. I think you've got people living in a home that's no longer suitable for them. Um, 
it's too big, uh, but actually it's in their community. So <laughs> to leave is a really difficult thing, isn't it? I mean, if you've always been, if you spent 60 years living in, I don't know, Ashton or Benminster or Bishopston or wherever it happens to be, I'm not, I'm trying not to be sort of <laughs> in a certain area, but you know, people do get attached to areas because that's where you, you meet your friends, your neighbors are familiar, you know, where everything is. And then to disrupt that by moving into somewhere more suitable for you uh, can be a real challenge because you might be somewhere else in the city and then you've got to make a whole pile of new friends. That can be lonely. Um, I think also if you're sitting in a, you know, a three or four bedroom home on your own, um, that home could actually be used by a family. Um, you know, So we've got a kind of disconnect here. Obviously there are various solutions. So solutions you'll see from you know, very, very good and reputable um, organisations like St. Monica's. Um, we've got Care Villages. You've got one at the chocolate factory. Apparently it's beautiful, you know. Um, but not everybody wants to live with a, a whole pile of other older people. <laughs> they might they might want to see some young faces around the place. Uh, so I think that that's a challenge. Um, mm. But for some, that's, that's a perfectly decent uh, way of going, isn't it? And I suppose if you're getting too frail, then obviously you'll need to move into some kind of supported accommodation. If moving across a city is difficult and isolating, how about moving across continents? Lizzie from BHN tried to imagine the journeys Bristol Hospitality Network members have been on in search of a secure home. I can't imagine going to a different country, not speaking the language, not understanding the rules and the methods of that country knowing nothing really about you know <laughs> you've even got to learn where to get your groceries from when lockdown hit you know these people with no recourse full of funds had no income there's no money we give them institution payments we, we we increase that over lockdown like you've just got nothing you've got nothing to kind of grab onto i can't imagine how lost and kind of isolated and how sort of scared i would feel um without at least that one bit of support to feel like actually i've got i've got that at least I've got my accommodation, I can breathe, I can regroup, I can think about what the next step looks like. Um, I, I, can't imagine, I can't imagine having to run away from somewhere, you know, thinking that this is better. No one comes to the UK for, what is it, 40 something quid a week or <laughs> however much it is when you get sort of um, help from your home office. No one comes here for that. They're coming from something way worse to be able to, to go through that process. So I can't imagine, the, I mean, we've seen this time and time again, our members have unbelievable resilience um and uh, i definitely can't imagine doing what they've done so when does a place become a home does there come a point where as bernie said earlier we simply decide that home is bristol and what is it that makes that possible we want our homes to be secure but true security like rianne said is not only about having a roof Bristol residents spoke about the need to make a home a home and having the power to do that. Okay, um, I suppose, first of all, you've got to recognise somebody else as a valuable human being. So that's stage one. I think the second thing is empathy. So, you know, what would it feel like to be uh, that person? All right. And, and I do think that that's the thing. So um, when I see somebody on the street, I think, what's it like for that person? Uh, sometimes I stop. I, I stop if I can and talk to somebody. Um, and when we were building Emmaus, um, 
all those years back. I said, you know, the, the number one goal is would I want to live here? Not would it be okay for somebody who's come off the street? Would I want to live here? And we made sure that the, the, little, um, the little units that we had, of sort of, I think it was about 20 units in this home in, in St. Phillips, which is still there and still doing the good work. You know, it's got to have all new stuff. It's got to look nice. It's got to be a place that uplifts somebody. Um, and I think that's what has been my personal goal ever since. You know, and, and I remember somebody wanted to give me a, at the beginning, somebody wanted to give me a soiled mattress, okay? You know, I won't go into detail, but, oh yeah, so that'll be okay for the homeless, won't it? And I say, no, it won't be actually okay for the homeless. They're people and they're not the, the homeless. I hate that term, the refugee, the, it makes them sound like a chair. You know, they're people, they're homeless people. And no, it's not good enough. Actually, we're going to provide all brand new stuff because that's what they deserve. And I think, you know, with Anchor, I take that, I take that person, I mean, I'm personally involved, you know, I, I want to see people have a nice place because uh, mm. it could be me. That's as simple as that. For Benoit, being able to decorate his home and to make decisions about the space around him matters about your ability to make a home out of where you live. I, at the previous place I lived before here, the, it's both, both times actually been the agency rather than the landlord. And I think the landlords in both situations have actually been like individuals who aren't like mass owners of property and are just trying to get a bit of extra money out of it, which is another way that the system uh, causes this or exacerbates the problems. But in the previous place I lived, we had absolute freedom to do what we liked because it was a, it was an absolute tip. They never fixed anything, but it meant that we could literally paint on the walls if we wanted to kind of, but that came with the problems that when the oven broke, the agency pressured his friend who was an electrician to fit the gas oven and it exploded. But, but now I live in a house where I'm not allowed to do anything at all. And it's, as you can see behind me, obviously people in the podcast can't, but my bedroom is lime green all the way around and I'm not allowed to put any pictures up. I'm not allowed to re-decorate. And I'm like, as someone who's all about the visuals and how things look to some extent, it, it's almost demoralizing. The whole house is weirdly decorating, decorated and we're not allowed to do anything about it. Um, it's kind of just makes it so that I can't make where I live at home. And I think that's indicative of a wider problem. Like it's not people who are, want to put a picture up who aren't allowed. It's being able to treat somewhere as though it's your home rather than just a house that you're living in. For Sharon, making a home a home extends outside of her house and into her neighbourhood too. I asked her what is it that makes her so passionate and active in looking after her local area and why this relates, for her, to building a sense of home. Um, I think mainly because I grew up in the area. I went to nursery school and secondary school and all my friends and family. Um, I remember what it was like back in the day when we all were allowed to go out to play in green spaces in the parks and there was lots of shops and it was hustle and bustle. Um, and it was a really nice place to be. So as I started to grow up and uh, my career started, I realized how important home was. And it's very important to have somewhere secure and tidy that you can call home and raise a family. So it's really important 
for me and for my neighbours and friends to see a nice space uh, in BS5 and, and make sure that it's maintained. So mm. I, I've always been um, encouraged to work with others and agencies and services that all uh, have the same thing in mind but sometimes struggle to kind of work together. Mm. So I always like to think of myself as a bit of a coordinator, someone that likes to work with different spectrums so that we can all meet the same aim and same goal. Yeah, it's really important that we maintain BS5 um, because it's always, always, from as long as I can remember, been a really vibrant and um, interesting place to live. People in Bristol are passionate about creating home and community. And as individuals, we each know how vital a secure home is and get frustrated with the things which stop us from settling down in a secure space, which we can control. Whether that's a flawed rental system, rising house prices, a change in our circumstances, discrimination, ageing, illness, or the fact that we've travelled across the world in search of sanctuary. Are these housing issues we hold in common around our homes destined to remain forever? Or are there actions we can take, in partnership with charities like Shelter, BHN, The Anchor Society, and in partnership with each other, through co-ops and campaigns? In the next episode, we'll be looking at collective action around housing in Bristol, and how, in coming together, Bristol residents are having an impact in tackling some of these issues. To get advice with your housing, or to find out how you can get involved in the Fair Renting campaign, call Shelter Bristol on 0344 515 1430 or email home at You can learn more about BHN and becoming a host on their website www.bhn.org.uk and you can reach the Anchor Society at www.anchorsociety.co.uk If, like Sharon, you have ideas about how to create a greater sense of home in your local community and want some help to make it happen and to connect with others, contact us at the network on 0117-955-6971. To finish today's episode, here's Joe talking about what happens when you can settle and invest in a home. Um, it's really nice to have somewhere nice. You know, if you want to, if you want to paint somewhere, then it's you that's going to benefit. It's not, um, it's it, it's not wasted energy. Um, so it's good to it, it, it's it's good to put your time and your energy into something which you can you can you can keep building on. And it might even be something as simple as, oh, I'm going to I'm going to plant a tree because, you know, I I know that I'm going to be here in five years' time and I'm going to see it you know, watch it grow, you know, it's going to, this, this, this garden is going to mature, I'm going to put these plants in. Um, it's, it's completely different to having like a, a really sad spider plant that you, you've taken, you put it in your rented room each time you move. Putting down roots. It's putting down roots. Music for today's episode was Yana, composed and performed by Bristol-based artist Cabo Hugh Ferdinand. The song celebrates Cabo's family and the South African township he is from.
Salut!